Welcome to Real Good Company, a show about real people building good companies that make a big impact. We go behind the scenes to get the good, the bad, and the ugly, so you can become a better leader and gain fresh wisdom for both your personal and professional life. I'm your host, Allison Trebridge. And I'm your host, Caitlin Crosby-Benward. And you're in, in Real, Real Good, good Company. company. <laughs> Tina Wells, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. We are so thrilled to have you. Caitlin and I are truly your biggest fans and you do so much. And we were just saying before we hit record, just how every time either of us talks to you, we just get so fired up and inspired. And you always are sitting in the midst of so many kind of entrepreneurial things and books and brand deals. And just, it fires us up as entrepreneurs just to be around you. We love your, your energy and your creativity and uh, all the things. Oh, thank you. I love talking to both of you. So I'm so excited to get to do more of that today. (laughs) And I remember meeting you, Tina, when we were on, was it one of the summit series on a boat or when it was on some TP type place? Was it Tahoe? Because that was maybe a- okay. Yeah, it was yes. really tough. And then we did some Oprah things together. We did, and through the years, and then, and then it just happens to be that Allison and you are also friends. So you are the true definition of the type of people we would love. We love having on the show real good company. You're real. You're part of making the world a better place, and we're in real good company with you because we're friends and we love you. Well said. And Tina, I'm I'm so. Th- thrilled to just get to dig into your story a little bit more today. So you started at a really young age, right? You were like a teenager when you started your first company. Is that right? It's very true. Yes. (laughs) I was 16 and you know, the story is great for a while when you were like 10 years ago, but now when I'm like 25 years ago, (laughs) not as great as it sounded 15 years ago. No, it's still great. Wait. So tell us, how did you start a company at 16? How did that come about? And how did you grow it into something pretty, pretty significant. Yeah. I, I wanted to be a fashion writer. I didn't even know what marketing was. I honestly, I was reading 17 magazine and answered an ad to be a writer at a newspaper called the new girl times. And I got hired as a product review editor. And so literally my job was to try products and, and write what I thought about them. And when I would send those reviews back to companies, they always said the same thing. If I send you more stuff, will you tell me what, like, keep telling me what you think? And, and so I thought this is the best dream ever, right? I'm like suburban teenager, oldest of six kids, had a great life, but my parents certainly couldn't afford to buy me every new thing that I wanted. Like I still like drag my mom about how my aunt bought me LA gears and she like returned them because they didn't quite fit and got me generic sneakers and like shoes for church. And I was like, how would you do that? Right. So this was like, I finally figured out a way to quote unquote, finance my suburban lifestyle. (laughs) And I didn't think that I could make money. I didn't think it was a business. I just just thought this was a fun thing that got me product that I liked. And then I, you know, got friends involved. I would do surveys. And I, um, when I was in college, this is about two years into it. I had a quote unquote client who said, I'm going to tell you something really important. Um, I just hired someone for market research. I paid them $25,000. And what you and your friends told me was 10 times better. And she's like, I can't get into it. I got to run to a meeting. You have a business. It's called market research. You should figure it out. And I went to one of my professors and said, I've been doing this thing. And, And then she said, 
take an independent study with me and, and we were going to figure out this business. And so <gasps> we did. And, and that is what really kind of started the business and the charging policy. And by senior year of college, I had six figure research projects. And so literally, oh you know, gosh. I was very lucky, very, very lucky. Now tell us how did you grow the clientele you have and harness the communities of influential consumers and buzz spotters, mom spotters, et cetera. Uh, so this is also the part of like right time, right place. And so remember, like started the business in 1996. And if you think about what was going on in the world, I was like a year or two before the teen boom, right? So NSYNC, Backstreet Boys, Britney Spears, teen people, yeah. teen Vogue, Abercrombie, like everything in teen culture kind of blew up at the same time I was running this teen agency. And then uh, I kept saying, well, you know, I've been studying these people for six years. They're now 24. I don't like, I don't want to lose them. And then what <laughs> happens? They become millennials, the most important demographic ever in history at that time. So <laughs> I was always in a position of clients finding me. And, and it started with like, mm-hmm. you're that girl I've been hearing about too. By 2006, like you're the millennial whisperer. We need to hire you. Wow. Um, and and so Ooh. it was very organic. And, and I kind of thought a lot of the evolution of the company. Like I remember when I was doing research only and a client said to me, those beauty research people I was talking to, I actually need them as influencers to help me with a launch at Sephora. And I was like, I can't charge you because I don't know that I think that that's going to work. And then like, of course it worked and ended up becoming, you know, 40% of my business. But, you know, I was very fortunate that clients also led me in a way, an innovation in a way I wasn't prepared because I was a teen entrepreneur. So I kind of just went with what my clients needed. Wow. What was the like day-to-day kind of operational work that you would do? Like, how would you run this research? How did you like, how did you do it? So it's, it's interesting because I had a BuzzSpotter network as you spoke of and BuzzSpotters were originally what the name I came up with for me and my friends. And then I remember when (laughs) one of my friends was like, my cousin lives in Texas and she wants to do this too. And again, remember this is mid nineties. I was like, well, I don't think that will work. How would I communicate with your cousin? <laughs> you know, obviously now, you know, you would, how we would do that. And it was really organic. And then back in 2000, I was in one of the first ever issues of Cosmo Girl and they ran like a two sentence blurb about what I was doing. And I got 15,000 applications from teenagers all over the world who wanted to be buzz spotters. And so we accepted like 9,000 of them. It was still very peer to peer. So I built a board of like 25 teenagers. And I, I mean, the magazine was calling me like moms are calling, you need to respond to these people. And I'm like, I don't know how, like there are too many people. It's oh too that. Like, like there's not a process for this. And so it's always very, very peer driven. And then the network just really expanded, but that's what the clients really started to love was these insights that really led to all the activations we were doing for them. Wow. Okay. Now you have done a major pivot, not major pivot, because you're still (laughs) doing all your marketing ninja magic everywhere, all over the world with all different types of people. But tell us a little bit about becoming an author. Why this genre, where did all your series ideas come from and all that good stuff? Yeah. So what's interesting is like a decade into running the the agency, I actually did my first book deal uh, for Mackenzie Blue. I was actually doing marketing for a publisher and they said, you should do your own books. And so at the time, I'm sure we remember Gossip Girl, Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, Roswell. Most people don't know that that came from a youth marketing agency. What? Called Alloy. Yeah. And no so they way. were a big competition. And so my client was like, well, Alloy does it. You should do it. And I was like, I am an agency. 
I don't have any time now. Mind you, I went to school for journalism. I have a degree in journalism. And so I, my deep passion was to be a writer, but I was now into this business and I'm like, I just got to see this through. And then what happened is I was working for you know a top three uh, CPG company in the world. And I was doing a focus group for them on this new emerging consumer called Tween. And during a break in a focus group, a mom came up to me and she said, you seem to know about things like this. My daughter's 10 and reading Gossip Girl. What do I do about that? I want her to read, but is that appropriate? And that was the moment where I thought, okay, what if I could create for a 10-year-old girl something as juicy and exciting as Gossip Girl that was actually good values and talked about girls in STEM and sustainability and being a good girlfriend. And that became McKenzie Blue and sold hundreds of thousands of copies. But again, I couldn't focus on it. So I kind of just kind of died a little bit. And then mm-hmm. Audible a couple of years ago bought the audiobook rights. And I thought, okay, if I really want to explore content, now's the time. And obviously we've all seen that I was doing more and more content programs for my clients at the agency. And I thought we've got to explore this intersection of research and content and product and community. And I want to actually go explore that. And so you know, what I do every day now, I still, consumer insights are a huge part. I don't develop a book series without thinking about Where's my girl at in her life stage? What's going on in her life? How do I create something exciting for her? Mm -hmm. How do I think through to the market, to the end user experience? But it's just a different, you know, it's very different than an agency. And and obviously the biggest difference is no clients, right? Like my (laughs) team, we are the client, like we get to be our own client and that feels great. Wow. I love this so much because obviously I interact and work with a lot of authors through Copper. And I think one of the challenges for every author is the dance between content creation and then thinking of your audience. And I love this approach that you bring to it because it's really seeing your book as a product and then coming towards your, like deeply knowing and understanding your audience and coming at it through these consumer insights, audience insights, marketing insights, and almost matching the product that you create and develop towards what they want. And that's relevant whether you're, you know, a, a brand selling a physical, like a physical product or a book or content in this case. I mean, do you feel like that's been kind of the through line in, in what you've done? Yeah, you know, absolutely. And I always say it's like I have the two angels sitting on my shoulders and there's like the creative Tina and the business Tina. And sometimes they do not agree. I'm very creative, but my ideas are really rooted in, is this going to sell to the market? And so I don't create it without an end user in mind. Like I just don't have, like if you gave me this like free exercise, like just make anything, like I couldn't do it. I'd be like, well, who's it going to? Why? Well, like, like I would ask so many analytical questions that it just wouldn't work for me. So it's like, I I am very creative by nature, but it's always rooted in, you know, it's, I'm a true marketer and marketing is both an art and a science. And I always say, you don't want to give too much weight to either the art or the science because you get something so artsy, it doesn't connect, or you get something that's like analysis paralysis and you miss the mark on the creativity that, that needs to exist. Uh, Well, speaking of what do you think is changing about youth culture and what do you think they are craving? Like if people are trying to make a product or content, I mean, I, I love products. So yeah. What do you think? How is that changing? What are they craving? What have you found in your data? Yeah. I mean, so 
obviously I'm not a millennial. I'm a quote unquote zennial. So that like <laughs> tiny group that that's too young to be Gen X and too old to call themselves millennials, even though many of us try, by the way, <laughs> yeah, not true. Wait, what is the cutoff? Can you just like set the record straight right here, right now? 83 to 2000. If that, if you were born in 83 to 2000, you are a millennial. That's me. Don't let anybody try to tell you that if you're like 80, like me, that you're, we are, we are are just not. (laughs) (laughs) I'm 82. I'm 82. So I missed it. You're a Daniel too. I mean, but you'll you think about it, it's like there are parts of our personality that are incredibly millennial, probably much more on digital, but there are also part of us that have that like Gen X, just cool. Like Gen X, like is the glue that I, I swear keeps businesses together, right? Yeah. So like you've got boomers and science gen- generation who are like not leaving the workplace. You have millennials and then you have Gen Zers and then you've just got the Gen X that is like keeping everybody in check. You know? <laughs> yeah. so I find I have like a little bit of both energy, but I'll say with millennials, like they were my first kind of customer set and I just loved the spirit. You know, everyone's had such bad things to say. And I remember once I said to someone, like, oh, they're entitled in this and that. And I said, oh, how old are your children? I said, so your millennial is somebody else's problem in the workplace then, right? Like if they're entitled, they were raised that way. But I said, what I love about millennials is think about the fact that like they came out of college during the worst economic crisis and talk about bootstrapping and building companies that have completely changed the world, whether it's the Ubers of the world, like Airbnbs, all these amazing brands that came and completely changed the way that we get to live, right? And and there's that energy, but they also had this like really hard, like life didn't start out, their adult life rather, didn't start the way it was supposed to. It's like that promise Mm. they had just wasn't fulfilled. And then you look at Gen Z, who they're the most educated demographic in history, also the most native to the United States, most diverse and most native, you know, only 6% were born here. And so they also deeply believe that their government owes them, like should function rather. They believe where I feel like millennials felt like my government isn't doing what it needs to do for me. So now I've got to go out and create these solutions to make life better. And then Gen Z, they're incredibly creative, but they're entrepreneurial. And they also are really, really smart with money. So it's not I don't want to buy a car. I can't afford to buy a car. I don't want to buy a house. It's, do I need a really big house in the suburbs? Is there a better way to live where I can take up less space and travel and still have a great life? You know, and so I think what makes life great is very different for Gen Z. And and they so closely resemble teenagers in the 90s, which were probably Gen Xers. Yeah. I like Gen Z for the ability to turn their creativity into commerce in a really smart way. And we see that on TikTok and the flu, like how they're able to use these platforms, but not just for fun, but actually to generate revenue. And so I'm really fascinated by them as consumers. Tina, what do you think about kind of the, almost like the darker side of that, of the way that social media has been shaping not only millennials, but Gen Z specifically? I I was reading a New York Times article yesterday about just the mental health challenges of so many young people who are 20, 21, 22, feeling this pressure to constantly be performing or be a creator or be monetizing everything they do. Like, how do you see those trends and the the good and the bad with it? Yeah. So I always say like technology is a tool. I think that we have to look at some of the parenting around collecting awards. And I, I explore a lot of this in my middle grade writing now. It's, you know, I have a character who 
is blessed with the ability uh, to not tell a lie in Honest June. And really, she deals very deeply with the expectations of her parents at 12. And so I think that there are a lot of those expectations within the family. How are you supposed to perform and show up? And then I also think that, you know, we never saw, as, as when I was a teenager, do you remember that the only way you could be on TV as a real person was to get on MTV's The Real World? <laughs> yeah. And now yeah. look at the world we live in. So we didn't have to worry about looking perfect all the time. It was like, yeah. you would get ready to then get your photo taken to then go to CVS three days later and get yeah. the photos back. Right. So yeah. I don't think I ever once wore makeup in high school. No, it's like, like you don't even care yeah, about these no. things. And so I would say what's scarier for me is, you know, when, when I was in middle school and we wanted to like bully quote unquote, what could you do? Call somebody on three way and then tell the other person to be quiet. And then (laughs) you were going to do, you couldn't do as much damage as you can do. It's like now, you know, so I could just unplug my phone and I wouldn't have to deal with this until I went back to school. Right now, these kids never have a break Mm -hmm. from that cycle of bullying. And that's the bigger problem. It's like, there's no escape. Like once you're in that, whatever that air is, that space, you can't get out of it. And that's, what's creating such terrible mental health. And, and we can't talk about these things too, you know, and all these other issues and the pressures to be perfect, but it's that there's no escaping it. That That's the toughest part. So I don't blame social. I will just say, if you grew up, you know, in the eighties and nineties, you couldn't be that mean because you didn't really have all the tools that you have today mm-hmm. to really do, you know, the damage that's being done. Super interesting. I have a question. So because you do have an exclusive with Target, which is very legit, what advice do you have for people, whether they're an author or an entrepreneur or someone who uh, wants to follow in your footsteps in marketing to get to the level where they can work with someone like Target and get an exclusive? Like I'm sure it was, you know, years and years and years and years of of buildup, but Maybe just some advice for entrepreneurs, authors to get to work with the big boys like you have. Yeah, I would say all of my career has been really non-traditional, right? It just doesn't fit in any trajectory, any path. I, I've always kind of gone against the grain, done my own thing. With a lot of times people saying, I don't get this. It doesn't make sense. This is, or I can't tell you how many times I heard, this is not how this works. And I'm like, well, who decides how this works? Mm. It doesn't actually serve anyone for it to work this way. And then I try something and people say, oh, oh, that's interesting. Oh, I'm going to do that next time. You know? And so I think I'd say if you have an instinct that, that something needs to be fixed or something needs to be done a different way, do it. I think so often we wait for other people to buy in and it, it it's okay sometimes, but sometimes you do just have to like say, well, no, I have a gut instinct that this thing is going to work and I'm going to try this, you know, and, and it's okay if it doesn't, because now, you know, another way that something's not going to work. But I think so often we're told, especially in specific industries, this is how this works. Oh no, 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 no. That doesn't work that way. You got to do it this way. And so, um, I think getting to target, it was just, I ran out of ways and tried every way that was historically supposed to work. And it just didn't, you know, and, And the reality was I was an author who'd sold hundreds of thousands of books for a publisher that was just not going to publish another book, you know, and we can talk a lot about why that happened. I think we, we talked a lot about diversity in the industry. Like I should have never been in a position having sold what I sold to even not have a next book or not have a next option. And so in many ways it was like, thank goodness for that lifeline. Thank goodness that someone saw the value in this content because all the traditional avenues for that content had dried up. And now since, you know, I, I now 
gotten another 12 books under my belt. And so, you know, just 12, just, just, but I think it's important for people to know, wow. like there were so many no's before that. Yes. And I think so often we feel like we're doing something wrong or we're just not good enough. And it's like some, sometimes people just don't get the vision, but when they do, they really commit and get it in a big way. Wow. Tell us about what this new book series is. So you started with Mackenzie Blue and now you're to the Z files. Tell us a little bit about how you you think about it, how you write these books, kind of the messages within them. Yeah. So in in um Mackenzie Blue, Z was living in Southern California and it was all about a tween girl whose best friend had just moved away and, and just what life was going to be like surviving middle school. Uh, and then the Z files, I move her family to London and then Z ends up going to boarding school in the Cotswolds. And it's about her, you know, meeting all these new characters. So we, we get to, you know, explore some personal learning and attention issues she starts to have. So she starts to see a therapist and, you know, working with her parents realizes, okay, she, she's diagnosed with ADHD throughout, through the series. And so, um, I think that there are so many young readers who are also, you know, just coming to terms with learning and attention issues. And I think we have to normalize that all of this is okay, that we mm-hmm. all learn different ways. And it's important to me in this writing to not ever present a like perfect character. You know, like Z is a very flawed girl, but she loves those parts of her personality. You know, we always want to celebrate that. And I think sometimes you have some series where it like celebrates perfection. For me, I always want to celebrate like just being the best version of yourself. And so um, the series is really focused on like, how does she deal with being a California girl who now lives in, in London? You know, how does she deal with, you know, the world that she's in when she's like this very creative person who's now dealing with also this extreme wealth that exists? And, and then also how does she deal with herself and, and this diagnosis and what that means for her and, and her work and her studies? I want to read this book. This sounds attuned <laughs> to us. Again, a nice little therapy session. Just to- also, they're very fun. Like I just wrote a treatment for a book that's about a princess that comes from Spain and and all the hoopla around this princess now going to the sporting school. So, you know, these are some very fun stories. Oh, I love it. I love it. Speaking of like just getting real, one of the other things I, I wanted to ask you about is just the way that you've also in your career invested into other women and supporting other women in starting businesses and being entrepreneurs, specifically women of color. Can you tell us about Elevation Tribe and kind of the origins of that and what you're doing on that front? Sure. So, you know, let me be clear. You don't start a business at 16 without a lot of help. Mm -hmm. And I was really fortunate to have really incredible women who showed up for me at just the right time and right place in my life to kind of whisper the next step. And so, you know, I think we find ourselves sometimes so busy, right? We have family responsibilities and we want to mentor, we want to give back, but literally our life just doesn't allow for it. And so when I thought about what Elevation Tribe could be. I thought about like those 10 PM conversations with my best friends when we need to talk about something, we need to problem solve. It's the end of the day, literally. uh, And we're having the best conversation. And I thought, I wish there were a way to kind of extract this advice to a wider group of people that felt like mentoring, but was done in a platform. And and that's really what became Elevation Tribe. And so um, it's, it's expanding in so many ways. I'm, I'm Confidentially, I could tell you. Well, I guess not that confidential on some podcast. I'm working on a, a TV show, and I'm really excited about it because the focus is really on how do we help 
some small businesses that might be struggling and how do I bring in these awesome tribes of amazing professionals that I'm lucky enough to call my friends and how do we problem solve for some of these entrepreneurs who are having issues that maybe we can help and raise some funding and do things. And so I'm really excited about um, where the show might go and, and how we're bringing it to life and the people I get to work with on it. And it's just something I love. So I'd never thought Elevation Tribe would end up taking a direction of a TV show, but I'm super happy. Wow. Oh, so much for us to stay tuned with and keep up with. Tina, if our listeners want to find you, connect with you, where can they go? What can they do? Sure. TinaWells.com is the best place. I love it. I love it. Well, we're so grateful for you. So grateful for your voice. It's so good to see you. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for joining this episode of Real Good Company, a show about real people building good companies that make a big impact. Music from this episode is probably from one of my old demos. We hope you like it. (laughs) And Megan Schwindling is our producer. Thanks for joining and always remember to stay in real good company.